Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 as we continue our journey through this gospel, this short, quick-paced gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by the stylus of Mark, a protege of Peter, the Apostle Peter. We pick up in Mark chapter 11, and this morning we're going to do something a little different. We're going to cover an entire chapter, and that might terrify you at first sound, but we are going to move quickly through some aspects of this chapter, namely the first 11 verses, because I preached those verses on Palm Sunday several weeks ago, did the Matthew chapter 21 version. So we're going to read through that portion today to set the scene for what Jesus does in his ministry as he comes into Jerusalem for the week of the Passover. So as you turn there, let me just kind of set this up for you. Jesus is coming to the end of a long journey. He's been ministering for three years throughout the land of Israel. He's been in the northern part of the country most of this time. About nine months prior to this point, he begins his uh, descent from the region of Galilee downward, down south to the city of Jerusalem. He's been zigzagging across the Judean region and Galilee and And uh, he's making his way south as he makes stops along the way and he performs many miracles and he teaches many profound truths. He has timed his journey as only the sovereign God good. He has timed his journey to end up in Jerusalem for the week of the Passover. And we know that this is a week of destiny for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has planned and has come for this very week. Now, this would be Jesus' very first Passover since about three years earlier. This will be his second Passover to celebrate as a, uh, a born, uh, baptized, commissioned by the Holy Spirit, uh, God in the flesh, Savior. The first time that he was in Jerusalem uh, for a Passover was about three years earlier. And if you recall in that scene, he formed a whip and he turned over tables and he ran people out of the temple because they were using it as a a den of trade and not as a a place of worship. Well, he's back to that scene now, and he has stayed away for these three years because he was threatened by the leaders of the temple. And so it was wisest for him to stay away because his hour had not yet arrived. Well, as we come to this text this morning, his hour is more at hand. His hour specifically is an hour that will be on the Friday of this week. And we pick up right now with Palm Sunday and Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! 
Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That sets the scene. That's what we know as Palm Sunday. And that is a passage that we worshipped around last Palm Sunday. I encourage you to go listen to that sermon because it unpacks some profound truths that are found in the selecting of this cult and in the spreading of cloaks and in the waving of branches. Even the words Hosanna in the highest have profound meaning. So again, I urge you, you could go to our website and you could listen to that message in the full. I want to pick up with verse 11 as we now journey into some new text this morning. In verse 11, we read this, that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That little verse right there may seem small and discreet and obscure, but it sets the scene for the rest of this chapter. But I'm better. So here we see Jesus go into the temple and he takes a survey. We need to understand from this text that Jesus' destination wasn't really on this particular day, Jerusalem at large. He had a very specific place that he was heading to. The place was that of the temple. Because Mark says he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. There is directness here. He had a destination that was very specific as he rode into town. The, t- the text goes on to say that he looked around at everything. He is sizing up the temple. He's taking it all in. He's trying to understand what is going on in the temple. And the question is, what does he see? And, and more than that, based on what he sees, what does he think? Well, here's what he saw, most likely. He saw beautiful, tall, ornate walls of marble covered in gold. He saw a foundation made of stones that were bigger than even the stones at the base of the pyramids in Egypt. He saw columns going some 40 feet up in the air, ornate and decorated exquisitely. These columns were so big around that it took three men to grab hands to even surround the circumference of these columns. He saw grandiose courtyards. He saw the courtyard of the Gentiles, some three football fields long and two and a half football fields wide. He saw a majestic architectural feat like none other. He's been here before. (laughs) Yes, he was here three years earlier when he formed a whip and he chased everybody out of it. He's going to do that again in a moment, second time. He was also here as a little boy. If you remember the story in Luke, he got separated from mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, and they couldn't find him for three days, and they went back into Jerusalem and found him in the temple sitting with the scribes, asking questions, and everyone was astonished at what he would ask and even what he would answer. And he said then to his mom, who chastised him for separating from the family, didn't you know that I needed to be in my father's house? So he's been here before. This is by record in the Gospels, the third time that he's been in this temple. And this time he is sizing it up and looking it over, studying what's happening here. Then very plainly in verse 11 still, Mark tells us that it was already late and Jesus went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
So we can presume that at the late hour, he leaves the temple, he leaves Jerusalem, goes across the Kidron Valley, and he goes into Bethany for them to sleep. The crowds are gone, the noise has diminished, the temple is dark and quiet, and Jesus leaves it. There is a fact that we must not miss. The temple was created by God for God to dwell in. There's a place in this temple called the Holy of Holies. This temple was established way back in the wilderness. It was a, a tent of meeting, and God would fill, His presence would fill the temple and the tent of meeting in the Holy of Holies. And, and so here we have the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, the very place, by the way, where, where uh, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, the very spot. And here we have God in the flesh come into His temple, but this God in the flesh does not dwell does not lodge in the temple that was made for him. He leaves it and crosses the valley and goes into another nearby small community. That is something to note. Now, we go to the next day as we pick up in verse 12. Mark says, on the following day. So now we're on Monday of the Passion Week. And incidentally, as I said last week, chapters 11 through the end of the Gospel of Mark, through the end of 16, encompass one week in time. And we will spend, Lord willing, the next five months. We, we will take the rest of the Gospel of Mark up to Thanksgiving. I think that's when we land it and we complete our study of the Gospel of Mark. And it will take us five more months to cover one week of time in history. But this is the most profound week in the history of all weeks. And it will merit our, our close study and worship throughout those months. So it's Monday and we see that Jesus and the twelve are heading back into Jerusalem, the text says. Look at it. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I don't think he said that for the tree. He said it for his disciples. And in this moment, we see Jesus take a very strange action towards an inanimate object. They're heading back into Jerusalem. Jesus is hungry. He spots a fig tree. There's fig trees everywhere in this area of the world. It was an attractive tree. It was full of leaves. It was full of promise. But this tree bore no fruit. It could not satisfy his hunger, and it certainly could not deliver on its promise from a distance. Mark goes on to say that it was not the season for figs. And Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from your branches again. What a startling reaction. Why such a strange and strong response to this tree? Was he, like me, grumpy when he got hungry? <laughs> was he impatient? Was he craving figs in the moment? And because this tree couldn't produce, he just cursed it out of a fit of anger? It's shameful what many people in church history have done with this passage. Many have said Jesus wasted 
a, a strong word in cursing the tree, he should have spoken figs onto this tree so that they could have eaten. They, they say that he's demonstrated his lack of self-control and demonstrated anger, and we know that our Christ was sinless, correct? No, there's something going on here besides a grumpy, cantankerous Savior. What we have is a parable. Jesus sees this fig tree, and he sees an opportunity to teach from it. Our Savior is the one that fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And at the end of that 40 days, he's tried and tested by the devil. And in that moment, the devil says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You're so hungry. Jesus refuses to do so, but he could have. We know that Jesus, we know that Jesus, okay, keep going. We know that Jesus also turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. So he could have spoken figs onto this tree to satisfy his hunger, could he not? We know that Jesus walked on water. So why in this moment does Jesus curse this fig tree? Well, he sees an opportunity to teach a very important truth through a visual parable. This is a parable of what is happening to Israel. The fig tree in the Old Testament was denoted as a symbol for the nation of Israel. You can see this in Jeremiah, you can see this in Isaiah, and maybe even in Ezekiel. And so the fig tree is parabolic for the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament Scripture. The, the parable is this. Israel is a beautiful, ornate tree. And more specifically, the heart of Israel is the temple. And he was in the temple the night before, sizing it up. And I described to you what he saw. He saw a tree full of green, lush leaves, beautiful to the eye, full of promise. But Israel and the temple was barren, as we will see in just a moment. The leaves on this fig tree only covered its nakedness and its shame. And the ornateness and the decorative nature of the temple was only a facade that disguised the wickedness that was going on within its courts. So the parable of the fig tree here is going to point to something that we see next when Jesus cleanses the temple in verse 15. Before I go there, I want you to jump down to verse 20 and I want you to see the lesson from the withering fig tree. There we read that as they passed by, we're going to go back to what's in between these two passages in a moment. When they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Well, sitting between these two bookends, the one where Jesus curses the fig tree and the one where Peter acknowledges that the fig tree is withered to the root, sitting right in between there, is another parable. <laughs> it's the parable of Jesus cleansing the temple. And we put all this together because we see that when we see bookends with something in between, we understand that it all is interconnected and it all means and points to the same truth. So let's now go into the middle of these two bookends and let's see what fits there and what Jesus is teaching even in the cleansing of the temple. Let's pick up in verse 15. When they came to Jerusalem... 
and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. We need to understand the location in the temple of this scene. It is none other than the place that is called the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place large enough that could hold tens of thousands, maybe even I might say hundreds of thousands of people. It was three football fields long and two and a half football fields wide. It's the court of the Gentiles. It's God's provision for the nations. The temple was made up of several different precincts. There was the most intimate place where only the chief priest could go one time a year, and that was the Holy of Holies. There was the court of the women that was reserved just for women to go worship. There was the court of Israel. And then there was also this, the large court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not go into any of the other regions, precincts of the temple. They were not of God's people, yet God did provide for them a place to worship him because the nations would come to God in faith. And so we have here the scene of the court of of the Gentiles. We also need to understand the occupants of the court of the Gentiles at this moment are not particularly Gentiles. This is a Jewish festival. The Passover is at hand. And so the Passover brings pilgrims from all over the geographic region of the Middle East. And as they have come to this location from long distances, it is right to understand that they have not been able to bring with them their animals that they would offer at the Passover for their sacrifices. And so in this moment, Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles, a place reserved for worship, and he finds vendors and people and money changing hands. There's animals being sold to pilgrims who have traveled long distances to worship. There's money changers in the court. These pilgrims have had to come and pay a a temple tax. And they've come also to make financial offerings. Well, they have to have their currencies translated into the Tyrian coins that are only accepted in the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's money changers converting currency from all different types of denominations into Tyrian coins. And it seems that they are charging inordinate fees for the sale of these animals in the translations of these currencies. Because Jesus accuses them of creating a den of of robbers. And the truth be told, this was a money-making time for the high priests in the Sanhedrin. Passover was the most profitable season of the year for the church, if we call it that at this time. It is uh, Josephus, the church historian, says that the currency translation was done at a markup of 25% sometimes. And so they're making money hand over fist. They're selling doves to poor people at, at a price and a quarter, perhaps. And the poor people are being taken advantage of. And this is happening in the temple. This was common for this to take place at every Passover. 
It's not common to charge inordinate fees, but normally such event was, was, was staged over on the Mount of Olives. But as Jesus has come in for the second time in his three-year ministry to the temple, he finds that this is taking place in the temple, in the courts of the Gentiles. So Annas, the chief high priest, one of the two high priests, has moved this marketplace from the Mount of Olives into the temple of God, and it is the location that Jesus objects to the most. There are two massive problems here. The first is, these people are using a sacred place of worship for commerce and personal gain. Jesus goes into a place that should have been quietly, uh, reverently used for worship. If there was any noise, it should have been the murmuring of Gentiles praying to God. But instead, he goes in and he hears the bleeding of sheep. And the noise that oxen make, the mooing of oxen, the chirping of birds, jingling of coins that are dropped on the floor, the bantering of traitors, people trying to exchange currencies. Jesus walks in and he finds that basically the temple has been turned into what we would know as Canton. (laughs) It stinks, it's noisy. It's crowded, and worship is not happening. The second problem with this scene is that the Gentiles are not able to worship in the provision, in the courts that God provided for them to worship Him. You see, Israel had become very exclusive, arrogant, thinking that God was only for them. And so they move the Gentiles aside out of their quarters that God has provided so that they can conduct commerce and profit, all in the name of getting ready to worship on the Passover some days away. So instead of a sacred place for the Gentile people to pray, the Israelites have moved them out and have brought in a trade market. So what happened to the temple that day is what happened to the fig tree. Because look at what Jesus does here. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Just like he did three years earlier. He overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons to the poor. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is like standing outside of this temple on his way from Bethany, cursing a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. The temple was fruitless, and it was willfully fruitless because the leadership of the temple turned it into a marketplace. It was willfully fruitless. It was ornate, yes, it was decorative, but it was spiritually empty and spiritually ugly. It was so full of religiosity and empty works and words. And this is what set Jesus against that fig tree outside of town and against the temple in the heart of Jerusalem. I want you to just consider for a moment the authority 
listen to that word, the authority that Jesus Christ has in this moment. He is powerful in this moment. There are tens of thousands, I dare say hundreds of thousands of people in this courtyard. And Jesus Christ on his own is able to drive people out of the court of the Gentiles. He is able to overcome the noise and the rabble of humans and animals. He is able to overcome the desire for profit. He's able to overcome the desperation for animals to give to sacrifice on Passover, the coming Friday. He is able to command the attention of everyone, and he is able, through the turning over of tables and chairs, to run everyone, man and beast, out of the court of the Gentiles. There's not a one of us that could do that. We couldn't even whistle loud enough to get their attention to say, I'm here. But Jesus Christ has authority, and he is able to command the attention of these people, even when they are not focused on the God that Jesus Christ is. So he is powerful, and he has intense, uninterrupted authority. And he cleanses the temple a second time, and he drives them out. And the temple, just like that fig tree, the temple is the root of Israel's worship. It is cursed by Jesus Christ. I want you to know that this is the beginning of the destruction of the temple. Even Jesus' actions in this moment of cleaning out the temple, it is a parable as well. Because on Friday, when Jesus Christ dies on a cross, the curtain in that Holy of Holies, what's going to happen to it? Let me hear from you. It's going to be torn in two. And some uh, 40 years later, give or take, something else is going to happen to this temple in 70 AD. It's going to be utterly destroyed by the Romans. And Jesus is even acting out a parable as he cleans out this temple. He spoke a parable to that fig tree. This is a staged destruction of the temple because the temple is no longer needed now that Jesus Christ is coming to do something that he was appointed to do on Friday and Sunday of this week. So let me pause. That's some history. That's some setting the scene for what's happening. We've got to get some application out of this. What does this mean for us? So what? He cleaned out the temple. So what? The temple doesn't exist anymore. Or Does the temple still exist? Today, where is the temple of God? The temple of God is found right here within the hearts of Christian people, not all humans. Christians who profess faith and trust and belief that Jesus Christ died as a substitute on a cross on this Friday of this week and rose on the Sunday of this week defeating sin and death forever. When someone professes that and believes that, their heart then becomes the temple of God. Let me give you a passage of Scripture to substantiate this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul was inspired to write. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? That's what the temple, the Holy of Holies, was all about up to this point. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are the temple. So Christian, this morning I say to you, from the Gospel of Mark and from the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, your heart is the temple of God. There's a a personal application that you must get this morning. And it's this. The Holy Spirit, when you believe in Jesus Christ's substitutionary death in your place and resurrection on the third day and His defeat of sin and death forever, when you believe that, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and your heart is the Holy of Holies, if you will. And God dwells right there. And God is, as we see from Jesus' example here, God is very jealous for His temple. God wants His temple pure. God wants His temple used for worship. God does not want something that's just merely ornate and leafy green. No, He wants fruit within His temple, within your heart within your life. It is not a place for you to give over to the things of the world. Your heart cannot be corrupted with the things of this world like the court of the Gentiles was corrupted. Your heart was designed to bear fruit and that fruit was to be a worshipful act in word and deed of Jesus Christ our God. There's also a church application here. The passage that I read from you from 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You remember all the you's in there? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There's one thing that you need to understand about the Greek language. Pronouns, the you in English is an understood plural or singular. You've got to read for context. But in the Greek, this you is plural. And so Paul is speaking to a collection of people. This collection of people is a church, a local church in the city of Corinth. And so we also can understand that we, as Rocky Point Baptist Church, like these Corinthians in their church, we also are the temple of God. It's not this building. It's not all the metal, the shingles that we've been dealing with for weeks. It's not that. It's the collection of us, people who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Brings to mind 1 Timothy 3. Man, I can't remember the verse number. I think it's about 16 and 17 where Paul writes to Timothy, If I don't come, I want you to understand how to live in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, even the local church, is to be a house of the living God. And we as individuals, our hearts are the temple, the place where God dwells within His people. So there no longer is a physical temple, there's a spiritual temple, and it resides in God's people, and it resides in the collection of God's people called the church. So the church is why we are called the body of Christ. We are united with Christ, with one another, because we all have God dwelling within us as Christians. And so, just because we are shiny and lush on the outside as individuals or even as a church, even though we may look good on the outside, 
the lesson here this morning is that we are to be very concerned about what goes on on the inside of ourselves and of us when we gather as a church. It is so easy for us to be religious, for us to do ritualistic things. So easy. It's so easy for us to even find self-justification in these things. It is easy for us to say, I go to church regularly, and we call that Christianity. Well, I'm going to tell you, these, these uh, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the rabbis, they are doing religious things very well. And Jesus is disgusted with what they were doing. The fig tree looked really good from a distance. Beautiful green leaves. And Jesus got up to it and was disgusted because it was not fulfilling its purpose in providing food for those that were hungry on the road. And so, we need to be careful here that we don't merely look good, but that we function rightly worshipfully for our God who gave us the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ and the blessing of congregating together in a local church called Rocky Point. So I want to move on now because I want to show you what happens next, picking up over in verse 27. I've said that Jesus acted with extreme authority in clearing out the temple That authority now is going to get questioned because people are trying to connect all the dots and to understand fully what Jesus Christ has just done. We we left last. The crowds were astonished at what he was teaching. My house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. The people are astonished. But there's a group of people that is not thrilled with what has transpired. So we pick up in verse 27. This is now Tuesday, by the way. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. By what author- Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's his question, verse thirty. 8, 30, I'm sorry, 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So as I said, it's Tuesday. Once again, Jesus is in the temple. And he is suddenly surrounded by the members of the Sanhedrin. That's the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. The Sanhedrin was a body of men, 70 strong. And they were the religious elite. They were the religious authorities in the nation of Israel. They called all the shots, they regulated all the laws, and they were the justices. 
the distributed punishment for law-breaking. They were also a buffer between Israel and the Roman nation. And Rome dealt with the Sanhedrin when they had issues that went on in the nation of Israel. The text doesn't tell us how many are there, but it does say the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So it's very likely this could have been a crowd of 70 men surrounding Jesus asking him, by what authority do you have the audacity to do what you're doing? They ask him, what, are you, what authority do you have to do these things? What are these things? Well, it could be all of Jesus' ministry because his reputation has preceded him. He's cast out demons. He's healed people on the Sabbath, and he ate grain on the Sabbath in a week. Okay, it could be all of that, but I think it's more right to say it's in the immediate context. By what authority do you ride into Jerusalem like a king? By what authority do you drive people out of the temple? By what authority, Matthew 21 tells us, that blind and lame people came in and he healed them. By what authority do you heal people? That's the context of the question. And Jesus' authority, it needs to be understood, is the greatest threat to his enemies, this group of Sanhedrin. They are very concerned about the authority that backs him. So Jesus, it's not, it's not uh, by accident, Jesus stands before the most authoritative people in the nation of Israel in the place of the most authority, the temple of all places. And he is asked, by what authority did you just exercise authority and cleanse this temple of all these people? It's a dangerous moment, to be honest with you. If Jesus in this moment declares the authority that's given to him, he will be accused immediately of blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy is death. Quickly. Well, Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to die for blasphemy, the accusation of it, not the fact of it. But Jesus had an appointed hour, and that appointed hour was on Friday, and this is only Tuesday. So Jesus does not answer with, well, I come to you with the authority of God in heaven. No, he says, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you answer this question for me, then I will tell you it's a great rabbi debate. And the rabbi of all rabbis is going to win. It was close to his time of death, but it was not yet time. He had to delay yet a little bit longer for Friday. And so he asks a question, and we have before us a duel of questions between the highest human authority ever known to Israel and the highest God authority ever known to mankind. <laughs> Who do you think is going to win? And so Jesus answers their question with a question. Let's look at Jesus' question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What a question. Why? Of all the things that Jesus could put before these guys, why does he ask them, tell me about the baptism of John? It's a brilliant question. I'm going to tell you, and we see from the text, it's an unanswerable question for these guys. Either way that they answer it will land them in trouble. <laughs> if they answer that it is from heaven, 
then Jesus, they, I'm quoting the, the Sanhedrin here, then Jesus will say, then why didn't you believe him? And that's my authority from heaven. They didn't want to concede that truth. So they're not going to answer that way. So they commiserate amongst themselves again. And they say, well, if we say it's from men, these people are going to really tear us up because they really believe that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. And if we render it to just, I was just some dude in the wilderness, that's going to cause us trouble with hundreds of thousands of people. So, we don't know. And I want you to know that that was very hard for the Sanhedrin guys to answer with. Not knowing was not the marks of a good chief priest. It was not the marks of a scribe or a Pharisee to say, we don't know. They knew everything. They would even fake it when they didn't. But in this moment, they are trapped and they can't fake their way out of this. Jesus has asked them the most ultimate question. Why is it that Jesus goes to his baptism? If you look back, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We preached this, man, about a year ago, to be honest with you. About a year ago, we were right here at this text. Mark chapter 1. Starting in verse uh, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you... I am well pleased. So Jesus goes to his baptism by John the Baptist some three years earlier because this is where Jesus Christ was given authority by God the Father. In this moment, John the Baptist takes Jesus underwater and raises him up. As I preached a year ago, that was foretelling what Jesus would experience on the cross of the Friday of the week that we're at today and on the empty tomb, the rising from the dead on the Sunday morning a week away. And in that moment when Jesus came out of the water, the text says that he looked up and he saw the heavens split. And he saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove. In this moment when God the Father sends the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit resides within Jesus Christ and the Trinity is functioning fully and healthily together in unison. And it is the Spirit of God that drives Jesus into the wilderness after this baptism and leads him out to be tempted by the devil after 40 days of fasting. And it is the Spirit of God that carries Jesus throughout his ministry. And it is the Spirit of God that Jesus will at some point give to his disciples in John chapter 20. And so the power that Jesus Christ has comes from the Holy Spirit that God the Father sent to him at his baptism. The authority that Jesus has is the authority that comes from God the Father proclaiming upon his Son, You are my Son. And as I'm sure I preached on that Sunday a year ago, for God to call Jesus his son is a delegation of authority because a son 
in the context of Israel has the ability and the right and the privilege to act on behalf of the Father as if he were the Father. So Jesus Christ asks the Sanhedrin about his baptism in response to their question about his authority. And Jesus basically says, I get my authority from God the Father who is in heaven. I am the one that John John the Baptist came to prepare the way for. These people know it. He's a prophet of God's. And he pointed to me when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you Pharisees and you scribes and you chief priests, you must decrease. And I must increase, John 3.30. But that's not what's happening here, is it? You say you don't know. Neither will I answer you. They choose to respond in the way they hate. They claim ignorance. And their refusal to answer means that Jesus will not in that moment answer either. And he's got three more days and a last supper to go through with his disciples. Let me apply this part of our message this morning. How about you? When Jesus Christ confronts you and me, We're in this together. When Jesus Christ confronts us in our sinfulness, when our temple is dirty, when our hearts are not pure, and when we're not bearing fruit, and we're confronted by Jesus Christ, here's a tough question for you. Do you have this part of you that says to Jesus, by what authority do you tell me I'm wrong? I think you do at moments. I'm not saying you live here always, but I know me. And I have had moments where I have stiffened my neck to the conviction of God. And when he's confronted me in my sinfulness in the moment, I have for a moment said, by what authority do you confront me in this sin? I may not audibly say that. I may not literally even think that out. But I guarantee you in my heart of hearts... My being says to Jesus Christ, I'm not sure that that's the right authority speaking to me in this moment. And my challenge to us this morning is that we never question the authority of Christ when he confronts us and convicts us in our sinful ways. And we will have many of these moments until we die or he comes again, right? When you stiffen your neck at the call to not be angry, At someone, Jesus says, anger towards your brother is murder. When we stiffen our neck at that moment, when Christ says, do not be angry, do we say to him, by what authority do you tell me not to do that? I am just in being angry in this moment. When we are in the moment of not forgiving the one that has wronged us, we're not even following Jesus and how he taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we fail to forgive those who trespass against us, and Jesus confronts us in that moment, and we resist him, in essence we are saying, by what authority are you telling me to forgive my neighbor? When we as husbands 
fail in a moment, small or big, it does not matter. But when we as husbands in a moment fail to lay our lives down for our wives, we are in essence saying to Jesus, by what authority are you telling me that I'm to imitate you in my marriage and lay my wife life down for my bride? Wives, when you have a moment where you resent the call in Scripture to biblically submit to your husband. And 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, even if he doesn't obey the word. Oh, when you resent that call to submit to your husband. You're saying to Jesus Christ, by what authority are you telling me that I need to submit to this one that you've given me? Yeah, children, students, teenagers. When you stiff arm mom and dad, say, I know better than you do. In that moment, you are saying to God, by what authority have you told me to honor my father and my mother? That's what's happening in that moment. And there needs to be no place for that in our hearts. I'll give you one more. When an elder of a church refuses to abide by the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and you can go look at the list. When an elder says, I don't think so, those don't apply to me, he is saying to God, by what authority are you telling me that I should conduct myself in the leadership of your church. May that never be. May that never be. When an elder fails in ministry and then jumps out and goes into another place of ministry, he has said, when, and he is disqualified, he has said, I don't respect that authority. I'm my own authority. And I will pick up and build my own ministry over here. Happens all the time. Jesus Christ wants that type of heart in the husband, the wife, the pastor, the child. He wants that heart cleaned out, purified. And one day, if that resistance stays forever, one day that tree will be cursed to the root. That temple will be cleared out and the the curtain will be torn in two and the destruction will come upon that temple for all of eternity. This is serious, serious eternal business this morning. So I want to close with this. This morning our challenge is twofold. As we learn from the verbal parable of the fig tree pointing to the temple and the the physical parable of clearing out the temple. We, we need to understand this morning that as individuals and as a church, we are, number one, called to bear fruit, which means we ought to audit our hearts frequently. And here is the document that we audit against. And we are to say, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. And see if there be any offensive way within me. And if so, cleanse me and lead me on the way everlasting. That is a discipline that individual believers in Jesus Christ need to practice daily. 
And that is an exercise, that is a discipline that a church body needs to practice very regularly. And I think we do. I think we often audit because we are often in this word and we often make corrections in our lives. We also are to revere the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's funny, if we revere the authority of Christ in his word, guess what will happen? We will be a tree that bears fruit. (laughs) That's how it happens. We can't bear good fruit outside of revering the authority of Christ in his word. And so this morning as we close, as we prepare to sing one more time, I'm going to just ask you in this time of response, is there something in your life that is not fruitful? This morning is the time to give that over to God, to remove that from your heart so that you will be more pure in your worship and how you think and how you act and how you speak. Let's pray. Father, we've looked into your scriptures at a fig tree and a temple. And in some ways, we've dangerously come in close to seeing how we could become at any moment. Father, we are fallen through and through, but it's by your grace that we have been saved through and through and indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would continually convict us of the areas of our hearts that don't bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Not curse us. You cursed the sins of our heart on the cross of Jesus Christ. But now we get to ask that you would cleanse us instead of curse us. And so would you purify us, each and every one of us, to conform more to Christ's likeness. And Father, I pray this especially for our church and our congregation. Would you find us to be a pure people, worshiping rightly in our hearts, not cluttered with the things of this world. Father, I pray for someone here today who might not believe in Jesus Christ yet. They have heard a message from you to your people. I pray that they would look on and see our Christ and his authority and in their intrigue, they would profess him as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would grant them belief and that they would join us in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Jesus, you came and cleansed the temple, but your ultimate cleansing act of all your people was on the Friday of the week that we're in when you died on a cross in our place and rose on that Sunday to live eternal life. We thank you for that work and pray that you'd find us faithful to follow you all of our days. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.